This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. I'll talk to acclaimed producer Robert Lantos about his latest film, The Song of Names. It's a sweeping drama that spans 50 years about a man searching for his childhood best friend, a Polish violin prodigy orphaned in the Holocaust who vanished on the night of his first public performance. At this time of year, we hear a lot about people who are ill, about their caregivers, not so much. Veteran caregiver and author Peter Rosenberger offers eight great gifts for caregivers to give themselves this holiday season. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. For the first time in over half a century, more people in the United States are dying at home than in hospitals. In 2017, 29.8% of deaths by natural causes occurred in hospitals and 30.7% occurred at home. Researchers believe it reflects a major change in Americans' view of what is a good death. But experts warn that many families are unprepared to care for seriously ill loved ones at home. Lack of sleep has been linked to dementia later in life, according to a new Canadian study. It found chronic sleep loss prematurely ages the brain and may lead to cognitive problems, including dementia. The lead University of Toronto investigator found people who woke up a lot and had fragmented sleep had poor cognitive performance. The research is the first to examine the impact of poor sleep on the brain's immune system. Greeted by a chorus of people chanting his name at the finish line, an 84-year-old Canadian man has become the oldest person to complete the grueling Antarctic Marathon this week. Roy Jorgen Svenningsen finished the race in under 12 hours. The soon-to-be 85-year-old retired oil executive has raced in more than 50 marathons on five different continents. John Irving, the American novelist and screenwriter, has become a Canadian citizen. He took the oath in a government office in Scarborough last week. Because he is 77, he didn't have to take the history test, prompting a protest from a young boy next to him who complained it wasn't fair. Irving's 14 novels include A Prayer for Owen Meany and The World According to Garp. He says, at his age, ending up here in Canada is a love story. Holy night, all is calm, all is bright. That 
That's a group of high school students in Britain bringing some Christmas cheer to a lonely senior. 78-year-old Terence has spent the last 20 Christmas days alone. After his story appeared on the news, students visited him with a Christmas tree and sang carols. Terence explained that the loneliness was so difficult, he decided to volunteer with Age UK, an agency that pairs seniors for friendship, and he says the program has helped him so much. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a sweeping historical drama set in the shadow of the Holocaust, and it's called The Song of Names. I'm looking for David Rappaport. Rappaport, R-A, he would have been here in the 1950s. He's a virtuoso. When was the last time he saw me? London. Takes the violin right out of my hands. You never heard nothing like it in your life. Are you wasting your time finding David after half a lifetime? I might be all he's got. The mystery at the heart of the film is the disappearance of Polish-Jewish virtuoso violinist Dovidel Rapoport on the eve of his international debut. This after he was raised in London by a non-Jewish family while his own perished in the Holocaust. I talked to acclaimed producer Robert Lantos about the film. It began with my reading a novel called The Song of Names by Norman Lebrecht. Um, Norman Lebrecht is one of the world's foremost classical music scholars and critics. And he mostly writes treatises on classical music or but uh, he, he he wrote one novel, and this is it. It's a compelling story, but a compelling story at this today in this particular climate we're in is not enough of a reason for me to undertake the colossal task of mounting an ambitious, expensive, independent film on a big canvas. So, but it was more than that. It was to me a story that had to be told and had to be particularly given the times that we are currently in, where hatred, and particularly hatred of Jews, is finding it's finding a whole new life, uh, was something that was many thought would never happen again, seems to be alive and well and happening again, is certainly sweeping across Europe and finding its way onto North American campuses. So that, that environment um, made me come to the conclusion that whatever it took, the story had to be told. Remembering the, 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 the tragedy of the Holocaust in a way in which it hasn't really been done on film before, not through images of walking skeletons or horrible tortures, but through a piece of music that reveals all. It's, it's a very complicated story. It's about two boys, a Jew and a non-Jew, who basically become brothers. One of them is lost. It's about loss. And one is a music virtuoso. It's set over a period of some 50 years, almost 50 years. It begins in the late 1930s in London. And uh, by the end, we're in 1986, uh, having gone to Poland and New York back in London. 
mean, it's a story of um, of friendship. It's about these two boys who, they're when at the beginning of the story, they're both eleven, and uh, one is a one is a Polish Jewish violin virtuoso, uh, and the other is a nice British boy from a nice family uh, who adopt the Jewish virtuoso and to raise them as their own. Uh, and so these two kids are raised together, and they that they become like real brothers and best friends. And so when some dozen years later, on the night of the violin virtuoso's first solo performance to a sold-out audience in the presence of royalty in London, when, that, when on that night he disappears, his disappearance is becomes the 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 central preoccupation of the other one's life. Tell me about the role of the music in this. I thought in order to make this film, I need uh, I have to have a, my chief collaborator. Two people, director who is as comfortable in the language of classical music as he is in the language of cinema. And that's when I thought of Francois Girard, whose work in the opera is uh, as, as, as well known and successful as his film work. And my other thought was Howard Shore to create the score. Howard is a multiple Oscar winning composer of films like Lord of the Rings. Uh, but Howard is, um, I, I knew that he has, although he himself lives a secular and non-observant life, he has a, he was born into an observant Jewish family and had familiarity with Jewish liturgy. Howard began to work on the music of the film almost two years before we started shooting the film, which is pretty much the reverse of how it usually works. The composer tends to be the last one in after the film is shot and edited. But the director said that he didn't want it to be mostly about the music. He wanted the music to serve the story. Well, the music does serve the story. In fact, at one point it takes over and tells the story. And this was the first time a feature production was allowed to film on the grounds of the Treblinka concentration camp. What's the significance of Treblinka in the story? Our hero who disappears, Dovido, played by three different actors, ultimately by Clive Owen as an, as an adult. Um, he comes from Warsaw. He's, 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 he's raised in London by a British Gentile family, but he's from Warsaw. He knows that his father, his mother, and his two sisters were in the Warsaw ghetto. That's all he knows. And, but he also knows what everyone knows, which is that most people in the Warsaw ghetto, not everyone, but many, were taken to Treblinka and murdered there. He doesn't know whether his family was among them. You mentioned that six actors had to play the two lead roles. How challenging was that? That was the most uh, complex jigsaw puzzle that uh, we've ever had to deal with, both Francois Girard and myself, because, well, we started with the two adult stars, Clive Owen and Tim Roth. But once they were cast, we needed a 
20, 22-year-old version of each of them, and we needed an 11, 12-year-old version of each of them. And they had to match each other, both in terms of physical credibility and in, in, and in terms of every reasonable, reasonably similar personalities. And they also had to match each other sort of vertically, but also horizontally, because 11-year-old Dovidol, 11-year-old Clive Owen, had to be a reasonable match for 11-year-old Tim Roth. And... Uh, then the same for the 20-year-olds. So to actually assemble that was, it took the better part of a year and a lot of luck. It's not till the end that we actually hear that music. We hear bits and snippets of it, actually, throughout the entire film. But the full composition doesn't come in until, well, about two-thirds of the three-quarters of the way through the film. And then we hear it again. Is there anything else that you want to tell us about this film? Well, it opens on December 25th in in Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, and a couple of weeks later across all of Canada. Um, and uh, I can sort of guarantee to those who go to see it that they're going to have a memorable and emotionally fulfilling experience. Robert Lantos, thank you so much. Thank you, Libby. That was Robert Lantos, producer of The Song of Names. It opens in theaters on Christmas Day. They spend their days caring for others and often neglect themselves. For caregivers, the Christmas season can be especially tough. Peter Rosenberger is a 30-plus year caregiver for his wife, Gracie, and he broadcasts and writes on the subject. I reached him at home in Montana to hear about the ultimate list of Christmas presents for caregivers to give themselves. The holidays are particularly difficult for caregivers. There are a lot of stuff that's going on. We're trying to make it special for someone else, and we lose ourselves in the shuffle. There's just all kinds of stuff, and caregivers lose themselves. And so I thought, well, let me just write out some tips and think about some things that we can do for ourselves during Christmas that are going to be meaningful to us, that are going to sustain us, that are going to help us become healthier. And one of the things I talk about on my show is the goal is not for us to be happy in this because I think happy is elusive, but we can be healthy, and we can certainly be healthier. And in the process, we may end up getting surprised by happiness in ways that we don't expect. We can be healthier, calmer, and even more joyful in the midst of whatever we're dealing with. Your first tip is for caregivers to commit to seeing a doctor. Seventy percent of us don't. We see a lot of doctors, but not ours. And we put off our own health needs until we reach a crisis. I was at the doctor's office not too terribly long ago, and I saw a very frail older woman being pushed by her morbidly obese daughter. And the daughter looked like, I mean, she really looked unhealthy. And I thought, what's going to happen to this woman if the daughter goes down? 
What I push my fellow caregivers to do is go see your physician. Just make an appointment. Get a physical. Let them know you're a caregiver. If the, if the physician says ho-hum that you're a caregiver, big deal, then get another physician because the, the stress that you're under as a caregiver is worthy of respect. You talk about isolation, going to church. Now, I have to tell you that when I speak to caregivers here, and sometimes they're taking care of people who need 24-hour care, they can't even get respite to go to the doctor, as you suggest, or to go to church or, or any of those places. It's very difficult. It is difficult, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. And like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. And sometimes all you can do is go periodically. Sometimes the best you can do is slip in. But at least you're making an effort to be around some kind of community. And as long as you're held hostage in a house, you're going to deteriorate. And my my question is very simple. What's the plan when you go down as a caregiver? Caregivers are an at-risk individual. And if you do not take time for this kind of stuff, guess what? You're going to shrivel up. Anything else you would like to leave us with? If I could say one thing to my fellow caregivers during this Christmas season, there's some things that are it's okay to let go. Don't be a slave to nostalgia. Make this Christmas a unique Christmas and make it special just where you are, whether that's in hospice, hospital, or in a back room at the house, or whatever. You're not limited to that, but don't, don't imprison yourself and somehow thinking you've got to sacrifice your peace of mind on the altar of nostalgia. Let some things go and be at peace today. Sounds like great advice, Peter Rosenberger. Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Lynn. That was caregiving expert Peter Rosenberger. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.